Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 18. This week, we have a chat with Andres Hacke of Office for Political Innovation and the winner of this year's MoMA PS1 Young Architects program. Brian Newman, our legal correspondent, will also join us this week to talk about options for business structure. And we'll also be touching on some things in the news and sharing some endorsements as we try to do each week. So I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna, Amelia, and Ken. How's everyone this week? Good. Great. Ken, let's start with you this week. Ken, how are you? I'm doing all right. One of the things I was, you know, reflecting on uh, this past week is what uh, Donna talked about last week. And uh, she pointed to uh, Fred Sharman's blog about graduate school and, and education in general. And Donna was kind of lamenting about how the the bachelor degree has gone a, kind of gone away. And I, I was contacted uh, Leanne Chang from the ACSA and asked her, you know, what are the schools out there that offer you know, a four plus two program? And it turns out that there's about 86 different schools in the country that offer a four plus two program, which kind of was making me think about, you know, this goes back to the things we've been talking about before about debt. And I kind of wonder, do students need to stop buying into that system? <laughs> yes. And stop buying into, a, just stop, stop altogether buying into a four plus two. And I think, for instance, University of Minnesota, not to harp on them, I've kind of done that in the past. And I think NJIT offers this now, but the four plus two is the only degree that you can get at the University of Minnesota. I mean, you know, you can get the three-year, the master's degree, but if you're going there for a bachelor's degree, you're only going to get a four-year degree. So the problem is that then now you have to go, in order to be a practicing architect, you have to go on to get a master's degree. And now you're paying those graduate tuition rates. I mean, it's not, it's, it's completely nonsensical to kind of bury students in this kind of debt. And I think when you take away the opportunity for a professional degree, you're begging these students to, their only path, really, if they want to be a practicing architect, is to go and get a master's degree. Now you're paying graduate fees, you're paying graduate tuition, you're paying all of that stuff. And I think that there needs to be some kind of shift and I think either the students stop buying into this narrative that a four plus two is a valuable option and just stop going to those schools altogether, or they need to start changing how they charge students for tuition. And it's, I think it's, I was thinking about it. And one thought I had was that if you can't get a professional degree at a school in five years, then your last two years should not be charged at a graduate tuition rate. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yes and no. I mean, I think in my opinion, it has completely been a financial decision by the schools to stop offering the five-year BARC and start offering only a four plus two or a four plus three because they can charge more money. They can get more butts in the graduate seats and charge more money at the tuition rate. I also think, though, that the profession of architecture benefits greatly from having people who do a four-year degree in some other you know, area. We were just talking about Mitch McEwen and her sort of background in social culture or something was what her degree was in. And then having those people come in and have the ability to become architects, I think is great. I think though, the, the bigger question, and this is a tough one, the Paul Krugman wrote a little blog post two days ago, I think, called Rip Van Skills Gap, like Rip Van Winkle, but Rip Van Skills Gap, where he's basically saying, we're all talking about higher education and the need to have people with the right skills and the right educations. But the fact is that salaries with higher degrees have not budged basically since the 90s. Like, is the guarantee of financial improvement based on a college degree still a reality or not? He's just flat out asking that question, which I think for a lot of people, it may not be. 
especially if you're looking at a quarter of a million dollars in debt when you first get out into the working world. So, you know, it's all part of a huge topic. And the inflation is just rampant in any discipline for um, types of degrees required for any type of job. Like if you apply for a job in some, say, some administrative capacity, if you have a master's degree in anything, (laughs) regardless of its relationship to the actual practice, and regardless of the fact that you might be completely overqualified for the thing, it places you at a completely uh, a complete advantage over someone who might actually be more qualified or more appropriate for the position. But just because there's this investment in the idea like, oh, they got more money to spend on education. So maybe there's something there. This is something that at least in like liberal arts degrees is just all over the place. Well, that's kind of the crux of the issue, right? I mean, not all master's degrees are rendered equal. Because like Donna said, if you have a four-year degree in something else and you go and take a three-year program, then that to me, you've got a degree in another thing and you get a degree in, in our master and MARC, you've demonstrated some value. Um, but if you have a four-year and you get a two-year, I mean, to, those aren't the same. I mean, they're treated the same. And I think part of the problem is that if I have a five-year BARC and I have my skills match up with a five-year or a six-year person who has an MARC going through the four plus two. But yet the debt that they're saddled with is infinitely more than what I'm saddled with. So why do that to yourself? And why are schools deliberately handcuffing the students that go into that program? And they could easily say, okay, fine, your first professional degree, we're going to charge you the same tuition rate regardless of whether or not it's in the, you know, it's an MARC. But if you just say, because you're only getting two semesters more. And that to me is not the same thing as a person who goes for three years. I mean, that's a wholly different animal. And I just think that at the end of the day, you know, if your first professional degree, the one that you're able to take your license in, regardless if it's a a four plus two or a five year, we should have the same debt. I shouldn't be saddled with $200,000 and that student should not be saddled with 200. We should walk out of there paying the same undergraduate tuition and not be killed that way. And I think either the students wake up and stop believing this this fantasy that somehow that that four plus two is going to be helpful. I think, you know, and I think the other thing, and I talked to many students about this, there's this impression. I think they're either afraid to say it out loud, but I've heard a couple of students kind of slip and say it, that they can't practice architecture unless they get a master's yeah. in architecture. Mm. And that's not the case. Well, there's a lot of advantages seemingly being taken by different schools in this. I don't know if I want to refer to that punny, puntacular title of Rip Van... Rip Van Skills Gap. Rip Van Skills Gap. That's wonderful. I would say there's also a Rip Van standardization gap as we have more students being enabled to practice internationally and work in different countries that have drastically different, not just accreditation, but education cycles that they expect architects to go through, that a lot of EU schools are kind of adapting to the whole either four plus two or compulsory master's accreditation or program, or at least like titled program to appear more appealing to both American audiences and also American employers. So it's really in this like nasty transition zone where the school's not to say that the schools are predatory, but there is a potential for the schools to really take advantage of like diversifying their different programs in ways that aren't actually in the uh, student's best interest, unfortunately. Definitely. I'll push back just a little bit. I think they are predatory. <laughs> I think this is a cynical. I think, no, I think it is. I really think it's a cynical attempt because like Donna said last week, when you, back in the day, when you got your bachelor's in architecture and then you went to a master's program, you were under a master. You were under some very skilled person. And it seems like the more affluent 
people are getting that advantage and are able to pay off those debts. The students who are going to these state schools and going through a four plus two, like University of Minnesota, I can't imagine any reason a state university should be, a student walking out of this program here in the state of Minnesota should walk out with $250,000 in debt. It's absurd. If you walked into a car dealership and said, I wanted to buy a Hyundai, and then you walked out with a Hyundai, but yet you walked out paying $3,000 a month for a Hyundai, we'd all be going, who the hell are you? And nobody's asking any of these schools, who the hell are you to charge these students who are first professional degree that be able to practice architecture and have that kind of debt? We know what the profession pays. And, you know, the questions that get asked, and I saw that I've seen the list of questions from the ACSA, like, what should you do? What are the questions you should be asking yourself when applying to schools? The question that's not even at the top of the list is, how much am I going to wind up having to pay off after I'm done with your four plus two program? And not every student that gets after the four-year program, they have to apply to the plus two. I've talked to students here that have gone through the four-year program at the University of Minnesota and have had to, had to apply for the, the master's program and have been denied. So, <laughs> I mean, they are predatory. We would call anyone who sold a, a person a house without checking their income. We would call any of those institutions predatory. The institutions that are doing this are doing it for cynical purposes and they are absolutely, in my mind, predatory. Because I can't, I just can't imagine that. I can't, I can't fathom that. It's disgusting. All the more reason to move to a Sorry. country with free Sorry. education. No, no, Ken, your, your <laughs> outrage is shared by so many people. So obviously this is, it is, yeah. <laughs> and it's not, it's again, it's like a, it's an educational epidemic. So we hope that our lowly podcast will uh, put more inspirators out there and try to fix the system from a very broken foundation. But Donna, how are you doing? You know, to just continue on that. I had last Friday, I went down, we had our state of Indiana AIA board retreat. So it was all, there's four chapters in the state of Indiana and the presidents and vice presidents of each of the chapters came together along with the state executive committee of the AIA. And we were talking about all the changes that are coming that, you know, they're coming. The whole structure of the AIA is changing from national on down. And basically this is one place where Indiana is saying, we're going to try to go ahead and jump into this transition with our eyes open and trying to uh, not be lagging behind, but try to just be very proactive. But it just puts me in mind again that NCARB is also having the discussions and ACSA and NAB. I mean, we all know there's things screwed up in the architecture profession and the architecture education. And I'm still remaining optimistic that changes actually are coming, that these, you know, old fogey institutions, very established and long-term institutions are really willing to change. And I do see it happening already. So the AIA board meeting was very much struggling with some difficult transitions that are going to happen with how each state structures its own state chapters and um, there's financial changes, there's there's uh, leadership changes. It's, it's going to be a little rough. It's going to be bumpy, but I ultimately think it's all for the good. So yeah, I think everyone involved in our profession right now is looking at the schools and looking at the debt and looking at the way jobs are changing and saying that, you know, we've got to keep up with things. I'm choosing to be optimistic about it anyway. Good. Power to you. Yeah. The other thing that I'll just talk about because it was funny or, or because we're architects is that this retreat happened at a place called the West Baden Springs Hotel in Southern Indiana. And it was shocking to me just how amazing this place was. And we all sort of looked at each other and went, you mean this place exists in Indiana? Really? <laughs> it's the West Baden Springs Hotel is a uh, was a resort built in 1902. And at the time it was built, it was the largest freestanding 
steel dome structure in the world. So it's a huge central atrium dome that the hotel rooms are in a donut around. And then there are sulfur springs, mineral baths that you can do. And there's, you know, spa treatments and stuff. And the building was taken over by the, a Jesuit college at some point in the during Prohibition, I think. And then it stood derelict for 15 or 20 years. And amazingly was able to be saved, even though it was horribly derelict. I mean, it was the floor heaved, the so much of it was ruined. But, you know, if you throw enough money at a great historic building, you can totally bring it back. And it was fantastic. And I very sadly got trapped there an extra night because of the weather. It was very treacherous, icy roads. So, uh, you know, I got a massage and had a nice dinner and stayed in the spa. And uh, <laughs> oh, well, poor me. Yeah, I got trapped yeah. an extra night. We're going to have to include photos of that building in the Show notes. It is incredible. There's a Rookwood pottery fireplace surround that is just stunning. And yeah, you honestly cannot believe that this place exists in Indiana. Apparently mobsters used to go like to go there and do their spa treatments. Mm. Yeah, I'll give you all pictures so we can all look at it. It's beautiful. Very cool. Yeah. What are you up to, Amelia? I had a restful weekend of board game development. What? Um there was <laughs> A while back, this was almost actually about a year ago, Paul and I and a few Archonnect Nectars on the other side, we attended and reported on the Shenzhen Biennale um, of Architecture Uh and Urbanism. And part of that was this LA symposium that we put on, um, LA Biennale. And in that expo, I don't know what we want to call it, we can refer back in the show notes to our coverage on it that kind of gives you a primer on what it was. Myself and my husband exhibited a board game that we've been working on that we've built and designed about Los Angeles. It's about development in Los Angeles in particular and how at the same time when we both moved back, I moved back to LA. I'm originally from here and moved back in 2013. And when he came to live here from Denmark, we had this kind of mutual epiphany of like, wow, stuff in LA is like different than stuff in LA was relatively recently before. Like it was a very mild epiphany, but nonetheless an inspiring one. And so we wanted to kind of channel that epiphany in a way that we hadn't seen channeled before and a board game seemed like a helpfully interactive way uh, to do that. And so we built something, kind of hobbled it together as quickly as we could to get it to China and get some feedback, which was great. And now a year later, we're picking it back up and trying to uh, make it better, take a completely different perspective on it and try to redesign the game board and like really get into the nitty gritty of the game mechanics because um, it is way harder than I ever would have imagined to design a functioning board game. Just going to put that out there. I mean, if you've played any of these like more elaborate games like Settlers of Catan or even Risk or something, like there's just so, there's so many rules that are so easy to just like take for granted as they just have to be that way. But then when you try to understand like, okay, how was it decided that this is worth three points instead of two? How does this go into the whole competitive uh, strategy and how do you make the game actually fun to play on top of all that? It's a it's a real trip. It's really difficult. So it's it's been a lot of fun. And we just spent like the weekend hobbled away trying to uh, take a second hack at this and try to develop it, make it better. Have you checked if uh, if the game has been copied in China? Yet? <laughs> I'm willfully <laughs> ignorant of that, but well, it's highly likely. <laughs> it is likely because when we were in Shenzhen, at one point we were all giving presentations and, and stuff. And then we looked over and there was a small group of locals documenting this board game meticulously, like photographing every (laughs) single card, the board from every angle. And I think the only, the only conclusion that we could reach was that they were trying to duplicate it. 
Yeah, so maybe they've solved all these all these problems that you're yeah, struggling with. That's a good <laughs> point. Yeah. If they figured it out how to play it, that's all that I'm that, that would just warm my heart because presenting that game was also a, a very strong lesson in learning how to make rules understandable to people who don't necessarily speak English as their native language. And I don't think there's any legal ramifications for copying someone else's project that has been copied from you. Yes. Right. I think they should. We'll have to bring that up with Brian. They might have to be considered a collaborator. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. It's all creative good commons. Question. Who knows? Could mean nothing. And so this is a board game you guys are going to develop and then market? Or is it more of a, a freebie that you would give away? At- no, we're pretty serious with it. That's awesome. We're not sure exactly what, what, what will happen precisely. You know, there are a bunch of different avenues we could pursue. But there's this great organization and convention that happens every year in Culver City called IndieCade, which is like a independent games development conference and symposium and such where people get together. Anyone from like app developers to board game players to like anything from Cards Against Humanity to the next like Angry Birds will come together and they'll try to develop games together. And it's a pretty amazing event. And a lot of people get great feedback there and help them kind of develop their game towards actual marketing. We're still in the development phase. It's too early to say, but um, it's definitely an exciting carrot at the end of the stick for us to like move forward to. Very cool. Is there any uh, any Gamergate issues with the board game industry? <laughs> <laughs> well, the founding designer and creators are 50% female. So, and we're married. So there might be some pretty strong, I don't know about the Twitter, <laughs> the Twitter reaction, but there would be some pretty strong backlash if anything like that were to surface. <laughs> I can ethically review it for you. Okay, okay? great. Fantastic. <laughs> we'll send it your way, Donna. Yeah. Paul, how was your weekend? It was good. It was a little disappointing because I had this plan to go to the Float Lab in Venice, which is a, uh, it's this place that houses some custom-made flotation tanks, like sensory deprivation tanks that I actually, I just, I, I found out about on uh, Vice's Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia series. Errol Morris's son, Hamilton Morris, does this documentary uh, kind of series on alternative... Uh, Ways to alter your brain chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was really excited to try out this float tank. I called up on Friday afternoon to make a reservation and I was told that they are completely booked weekends and weekdays for the next six weeks. So, wow. yeah, which Popular. I was, uh, I guess I was just naive to think that I could make a reservation so late. <laughs> But now, now I'm even more excited about trying it, which I guess is going to end up happening in April or something like that. But yeah, so I ended up just doing a lot of hiking. You could just fill your bathtub with as much Epsom salt as you can find and then just tell your kids not to bother you. Yeah, that, that's the part that's uh, not possible. Yeah. So is it like the experience like that movie Altered States? I think that's the movie, right? Where there's like in a float tank. It's been a long time since I've seen that. I, I, think, yeah. I think it is. Yeah, you, you go into a tank that is uh, filled with water that's at body temperature that has a lot of Epsom salt so that you just float at the same temperature as your body. And then the tank is closed. So it's perfectly, you know, black. There's no sound, uh, nothing to see, no sensory of any type, you know. So after a few minutes, apparently, you really kind of get into a really deep state of of relaxation. Um, it's common to hallucinate. I've read that a brief session is equivalent to an entire night's sleep. So it's a great way to catch up on sleep too. If you, uh, like me, I, I feel like I've been really sleep deprived lately. So yeah, it's just a really meditative, introspective kind of experience that I've heard a lot of good things about. So we need to start putting these in architecture studios so you can yeah. take shifts, right? Each <laughs> student gets, you know, you get your 10 minutes and then you don't have to sleep for another 24 hours. I wouldn't be surprised if 
you know, some of these startups have them. I mean, they, like Google yeah. has, uh, yeah, has those sleep pods. pods yeah. yeah. Well, I would love to, <laughs> we could have a podcast recorded or at least just have some ability to record from when you're inside, because I've been really curious to try one of these for a while, but my one harping is that I wouldn't be able to record anything. Like I'd, I, I presume if within 80 minutes of complete deprivation, you have some, some insight or some thought that you might want to remember. And then just the ability to not like reach for your phone or jot something down or like just record a message to yourself just would drive me crazy. But maybe that's why I would need to go into the sensory deprivation yeah. For yeah, some, this, at some uh, point anyway. This desire to record it might be defeating the purpose. <laughs> no, I'm, that's what Hamilton is doing. Yeah. That's really interesting, though, isn't it? Isn't that really interesting that we don't trust our brains anymore, right? We don't trust our brains to remember things. Oh, not at all. It's like, I've got to snap this picture. I've got to make this note. I've got, I, And I've been saying since I got a GPS way back 10 years ago, and went driving right past the Delta Faucet warehouse sign because I was looking so closely at the GPS for where Delta Faucet was that I didn't <laughs> see the Delta Faucet sign. These things make us dumb, you know? They just, they make us unable to operate in the world. Yeah. The school my kids go to has a very strict no photos policy. And the purpose of that is mostly to just uh, force everybody to be in the moment and actually right. pay attention. And it does make a big difference, you know, because I think our culture has become so accustomed to pulling the phone out whenever anything interesting is happening Absolutely. so that your phone can capture it while you're spending your time, you know, fiddling with your phone and looking at a screen rather than being engaged in, in reality. Yeah. I heard this amazing podcast of the new NPR show Invisibilia, where they interviewed this guy who was a um, PhD student at MIT in the early nineties. And he did a lot of development in the technology labs with computers where he created a computer suit for himself that he would wear all the time. This is like in the early 90s or so. And, you know, it was pretty heavy, pretty all-encompassing. But he got it to the point where it would basically record everything that he experienced and all the conversations he would have. And then he created a way to have like that database be searchable. So if he was having a conversation with someone, the display on his head up thing would show the last time that he had a conversation with that person and all the pertinent information based on what conversation they were currently having. And he wore this thing for like years. He even wore it for his uh, dissertation defense and it helped him defend his dissertation because it could carry information that he could in himself recall, or at least in the proper scenario. And they actually were like, yeah, this guy does deserve this, even though he's using this machine because he's been wearing it all the time. So it actually is part of him at this point. And this is again, like in the early nineties or like way before any of the, uh, any of this, like, kind of taking for granted the access to that equal amounts of information at, at the arm's reach. Well, that's a lot like one of the episodes of Black Mirror, which we've talked about in on the podcast before that's available on Netflix. There's an episode where everybody has these retinal camera implants that documents everything that you see, you know. So then when you go to through a building security checkpoint or airport, I guess, they just run a, uh, a redo of the last week to make sure that, you you know, you haven't <laughs> been, uh, you know, packing your suitcase full of explosives or anything like that. But I mean, the episode gets a lot deeper than that, but it's an interesting thing. And actually, you know, the funny thing is, is after I watched that episode of Black Mirror, I noticed that uh, I became familiar with this drop cam, which was recently purchased by Nest. Nest is actually, is owned by Google. Maybe Google bought Nest so that Nest could buy things that are too freaky for Google to buy. But drop cam is basically a high resolution camera that you can just place anywhere you want. They recommend people get a bunch of them and it records everything that's going around and it stores it all on cloud servers. So if you forget where you left your wallet last week, you can just access oh, wow. the video from, you know, that day you got 
back from the party and you didn't know where you left your wallet and you can just see where you left it. So it's, you know, we're, we are moving into that, that type of recorded reality. Let's move on to my talk with Brian, our legal correspondent. This week I spoke with Brian about the different options of business formation, corporate formation, self-proprietorship, LLCs, LLPs. They vary a little bit state by state, but as usual, we covered kind of the overview and introduction to this concept. We talk a little bit about liability issues and other legal issues surrounding each of these options. And uh, yeah, let's go ahead and listen to that. I'm here again with Brian Newman, Arcanex legal correspondent. Brian, how's it going? Paul, great to be back. Good to have you. So this week, we're talking about forms of corporation or uh different forms of business. This is a, uh, a topic that comes up a lot, especially with uh, young architects thinking about starting their own practice. There's uh, all different types of, of ways to form a business. So maybe you could list some of those and describe them. Sure. So the easiest and, and simplest form of business is, is what's called a sole proprietorship. And that's just if you were an architect, you were Paul Petrunia, you could just do business as yourself. So you wouldn't actually have to file anything with the Secretary of State. As long as you had a license, you could practice architecture just as Paul Petrunia. And the benefit of that, you don't have to pay any any special corporate taxes. You don't have to file any forms. It's very easy. There's not a lot of paperwork. The downside of that would be liability would be one example. If somebody sued you, you would be personally on the hook for it because you're doing business as yourself. Also, to the extent you want to grow and take on partners, maybe take on investors, it's very difficult, almost impossible as a sole proprietorship. So that really only works if it's just you. So moving on to slightly more complicated forms, if it was you and another person, you could start a, a partnership or uh, in California, what would be an LLP, limited liability partnership. That would have uh, the benefit of having an actual, what they call a corporate form to protect you. You'd be doing business not as yourself, but as an entity. So if there was any sort of lawsuit, uh, you'd be protected, personally protected. Downside of, of that in any sort of corporate form would be that you have to essentially file documents. You have to prepare documents, you have to file them, you have to pay annual taxes. And this is something I should say at the outset, very state by state. It's a corporation, it's a creature of state law. So what's true in California may be similar to, to the rules in New York or in Illinois. Not exactly. So you want to check the laws of your particular state. You can also do business as a corporation, what's called an S corporation or a C corporation. The benefit of that, again, you get the liability protections. Uh, you can't be sued personally if you're doing business as a corporation. The downside would be you do have to, again, file paperwork to form the corporation. You have to file a tax return. Uh, and if you're, a, if you're a C corporation, you actually have to pay uh, two levels of taxes. The corporation is taxed. And then when you pay your, your employees or the owners, you, they're taxed too. So it's what's called double taxation. So a C corporation is often not a good idea. An S corporation, you don't have that two layers of taxes. One common form of uh, corporation is LLC. Is there a difference between LLC and LLP? Well, it varies from state to state. So certain states, uh, California, for example, if you're practicing uh, professional services, certain professional services, law is one, architecture is another, accountancy is another, you actually can't be an LLC. You have to be an LLP. So uh, similar similar protections, uh, just different nomenclature. So you're technically a partnership rather than a corporation, and you want to check the law of your state to see if you can actually, as an architect, you can open an LLC. In some states, you can. Uh, California, you can't. And when it comes to C-Corp versus S-Corp, you mentioned the C-Corp has a double taxation. So what is the advantage of a C-Corp? Well, the advantage would be a, a scalability in terms of the number of uh, investors or the number of shareholders. And I believe with a S-Corp, you can have it at maximum about 100, approximately 100 shareholders. 
or 100 uh, participants in it, 100 members. With a C corporation, it's unlimited. So if you're going to have an entity that's going to, you want it to be owned by, let's say, 1,000 different people, S Corp is probably not the, the right entity for you because it's, it's, it's capped uh, the number of participants. But I, I would think for, for most uh, you know, average to mid-sized to even fairly large architecture firms, it would be pretty unlikely there'd be more than 100 shareholders. I mean, that would be a pretty, pretty large firm. But if you are a larger enterprise, the S-Corp structure is, is probably not going to work. Okay, so let's, let's look at a few typical scenarios. A young practice is formed, one or two architects, maybe uh, one to three employees. What would be the most reasonable form of doing business? If somebody came to me in California with that, that scenario, I would suggest probably the LLP. It's probably, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the difficulty in setting it up, it's relatively easy. From a legal point of view, it's, it's straightforward. The forms are actually you know, widely available on a site like LegalZoom, for example. So this is something you could probably do it yourself, even without the assistance of a lawyer. It's not expensive. I believe it's a you know, several hundred dollar fee, one-time fee to, to initially uh, set up your LLP. And then every year you have to pay an additional fee, but it's not prohibitive. And it's something where you're, you know, I would recommend that over traditional, say, partnership, for example, because you do get the liability protections. So I would want the, these clients to not be out there. Uh, if something goes wrong and they get sued, you know, the, at least the entity gets sued. They're not personally on the hook for it. So I think the LLP is probably the best option. Second best option would probably be the S-Corp. Uh, which is a little more expensive and a little more complicated, also provides the same liability protections. But for, for the scenario you suggested with two, uh, two architects and a couple employees, you know, S-Corp is probably maybe more than you need. What if it's a small business like I described, but that has a very high revenue or uh, profit? Does that make a difference? I mean, is that moving into S-Corp territory? Uh, both of them would be okay, actually, okay. even with the LLP. The LLP does not have to pay taxes on the, the money that's actually distributed to the members. So as long as what you want to avoid is that the entity has to pay taxes, and then there's a second layer of taxation when it kicks out the money to the owners, you and you and your partners. With both the LLP and the S-Corp, that doesn't happen. It's called uh, tax transparency. So in other words, there, as long as the, the corporation or the LLP is distributing the funds to its members, you are going to get taxed, but you're only going to get taxed once. You get what's called a, uh, for the LLP, you get what's called a Schedule K-1, which is essentially the, the entity, the LLP, giving money to the members, and that's the document the IRS looks at for tax purposes. So the members are going to pay taxes, but it's just going to be taxed once. So from a legal perspective, what are some of the legal protections offered in a corporate setup or, or a partnership? Yeah, well, it, it, it's really huge. And something where if there's a lawsuit, you really want to be protected by a corporation. If it's just you out there doing business by yourself and something goes wrong, a client sues you, somebody comes into your place of business and trips uh, trips and falls and really hurts themselves, they can sue you, you, Paul Petrunia. They can sue if you're married, uh, your community property assets would be something they could levy on. They could uh, potentially attach your other assets, assets from other ventures you have. When it's a corporation, in the event of a lawsuit, it's it's just the corporation that's the defendant, not you personally. So if the corporation is undercapitalized, for example, and there's a big lawsuit, what you can and, and what people often do do in the worst case scenario, you could always put the corporation in bankruptcy, close it down, and that's the uh, you know the extent of what your creditors can go after. But they can't go after anything that's not under that corporate umbrella. So you would be protected as an individual if your corporation had to declare bankruptcy and, and fold? You would be, which is not to say I'd recommend that, but you would be protected. I mean, oh. The trick is you, you have to make sure you observe the proper corporate formalities. That the corporation is actually doing business, you know, that you filed the articles of incorporation or the proper membership documents with the Secretary of State, that you keep separate bank accounts, that everything is done uh, consistent with the idea that the corporation or the LLC or LLP is its own legal entity. If you commingle your personal assets 
with the assets of your corporation, that could be a problem. And there's actually something in the law, they call it piercing the corporate veil, when a creditor will try to go after you personally saying, well, even though Paul has an LLC and Paul does business under that name, this is really just Paul doing business by himself. And he's really commingling his own personal assets with those of the corporation. So it's very important when you open a corporation, when you open an LLP or LLC, that they have their own bank accounts, that, that the assets are kept separate. And the reason is to ensure that you get the protection that you form the corporation for in the first place. Now, does a partnership, an LLP or an LLC, offer the same type of protection as an L- S-corp or C-corp? Yeah, LLP or LLC is better than traditional partnership. The, the traditional partnership may not offer that liability okay. protection. It does offer the tax transparency, but not necessarily the, uh, the liability protection. So I, I, I would definitely recommend the LLP over traditional partnership. Great. Well, that's uh, very helpful information. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. All right. Talk to you soon. Till next time. All right. So that was Business Formations with Brian. So should we move on to talking about the PS1 and uh, our conversation with Andres? Yeah, I had a great time talking with Andres. I thought he was extremely helpful in kind of framing this whole conversation about what MoMA's PS1 Young Architects Prize can actually do. It has a pretty illustrious past. It's not a very long running thing, but last year, the piece with these kind of ecological aspect kind of became very much the center of the attention for the uh, project. And then this year, I think his um, Cosmos Pavilion really elaborates on that in an important way of dealing with issues of water, not just as a cooling element, which is a natural and uh, recurring part of the competition, but as a recycling and a sustainability issue as well, that all of the water involved in Cosmos is recycled, goes through a bunch of different filtering processes to become purified and actually able to be used as previously not so. And this is all throughout this beautiful um, aestheticization of what is effectively an infrastructural project. The actual pavilion Cosmos is a series of pipes in this intricately like bent and webbed way that really is just an amazing, really impressive looking rendering. And I hope to see, I hope to be in New York this summer when we can actually see it installed. But yeah, we had a great time talking with Andres and uh, his office, the Office for Political Innovation, has some other really interesting projects that aren't necessarily obviously within the realm of architecture. I think that we asked him specifically about what inspired the name for the office and how his approach to certain specific social issues has driven his idea of what architecture can do in those areas. So the practice is very fascinating and I'm really excited to see what actually comes out in the physical product of Cosmos. All right, let's listen to our conversation. So Andres, our first question for you is simply, why did you name your office Office for Political Innovation? Yeah, that's a long story. (laughs) It's weird for an architectural practice. But for us, it was very important at the beginning to think how we wanted to be part of society. What was the way that we wanted to intervene in society? What was the position from which we wanted to do it? And at that time, when we started to work, that was 1998, there was a situation in which most offices wanted to be very cooperative. Like they wanted to be like big offices and so that they had everything that is required, like secretaries, accountants, lawyers, all these things. And there was then another way of doing architecture that was more artistic and a third one that was more related with activism. For me, it was important to find something in between something that could reclaim some independency from many powers and also a voice of its own. And then we decided to mix words coming from all these other models, like office, 
and then political, and then innovation, which were words that were coming from different realms. And we wanted to do something in between, taking a few things of it, but not all of the things that were defining them. And we've been working like that. So we claim that there's a possibility for architecture of not being catering to already existing interests, not being just mere transmissions or, let's say, organizations that do other people's agenda, but also being kind of mediators that we could produce our own positions and finding who are the partners that could help us to make them happen. And I really enjoy working like that, and we're very happy to have done that in the last years. So how does this MoMA PS1 Young Architects Prize, uh, how does that factor into that pursuit of combining different disciplines and the different methods of architecture? And particularly, do you feel there's a political bent to this kind of work? Yeah, definitely. I think that there's many ways of doing politics. And one is, of course, the politics of words and statements. There's other way of doing politics that has to do with political parties. And, but I'm very close to those who think that there's also material politics. And those material politics are performed by devices and by the way we relate to our architecture, for instance. And I think Cosmo is exactly that. Basically, what we want to do is to intervene pipes, something that seems very ordinary, but, but in my opinion, is very much shaping a big part of, what, of the way we are constructed as societies. The fact, for instance, that pipes are high is already a sign of that. And we wanted to do an action by which a tiny contribution to pipes to become visible and therefore something to discuss about could be happening in New York. And because the PS1 is not only operating offline, but also online, to bring that debate into a broad audience. So, um, Andres, Cosmo clearly contains a lot of science behind it, yet it's also quite beautiful. Does either the design or functionality have to be compromised at all to achieve this type of balance? Well, like there's no single way to, to explain it. I think it's a combination of many things. For us, it's very important that it performs certain actions, and in this case, it purifies water. And at the same time, it needs to do it in a way that gets people attention, attracts people's attentions, and, and therefore it becomes something that makes people think of how those processes of water are normally performed. So it's a combination of how it works, but it's not only that, because basically we're not that interested on the way the water is purified in itself, but how that relates to a situation in which the quality of water it's in the middle of so many debates and so many living conditions. So also beauty you mentioned, it's very important for us because we need to do it in a way that is not perceived as something aggressive, but in a way soft and open for people to do with it whatever they want to do. And beauty's got to do with that because we thought it needed to be perceived a little bit like a, a pet or something that is cute and that therefore could be seen as something that you could be tender about. So when you put all this together, then it came Cosmo for us. And we're very much willing to see what happens when it's constructed. I love that idea of making an infrastructurally relevant project and referring to it as a pet. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I have some specifics about what Cosmo will actually be doing. It will be filtering and purifying 30,000 gallons of water over four days that will become 
pure, and by pure that means potable, able to drink, I'm guessing? Yeah. Basically what it does, Cosmo is a machine or a big artifact that is containing a series of ecosystems. Ecosystems that are produced in tanks, in pipes, in waterfalls, in a series of devices through which the water is going to be circulating. And each one is doing something to the water. So, for instance, many of them are filtering uh, naturally with plants that have been selected. So their roots mainly act as natural filters of certain particles that could be in the water. And then there's other parts that work rather like ecosystems in which biologically some components of the water are going to be decomposed and then being removed from the water. And then the waterfalls are going to be increasing the diluted oxygen in the water. And then we're going to expose it to the ultraviolet light. And so there's a series of chained actions on the water that will result on a purification of it. The whole process will be happening in four days. And at that point, the water will be technically drinkable. Of course, there's limitations and the regulation of most places make it impossible that the water could be actually drunk. There would be so many processes to make it legally possible. But it's not needed for us. What is important is that the whole process is going to be watched and we have sensors in the different part of the system so we can inform of what's the way the water is evolving. And even people could be able to consult that information online and through up in a number of ways so they will be able to follow what is the way the water is evolving. That's very important because the way for people to relate to Cosmo is not necessarily by using the water, but for instance, things that are very common nowadays like reproducing the system at home or in the place where they are. And that will be possible because one of the things that we're doing already is to produce a series of videos in which we will be explaining what is the way that we're doing Cosmo. So anyone could be getting that information and being able to reproduce that, for instance, in a distant place in South America or in Europe or in the U.S. and being able to compare the results that he or she or they are having with the ones that Cosmo is getting in the PS1. So it's something that is traveling and that management and let's say making knowledge collective, it's kind of the goal and it's not even a close knowledge. So maybe the result that someone could get in another place is better than the one that Cosmo has. And maybe we're able to learn from those people that are doing the experiments slightly different in other place and even have the time to put it in the PS1 and see how that results. So, Andres, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking was whenever I've been to a science museum, I always look at the exhibits and think how dry they are and how seemingly unapproachable they are because they're just doling out information and they're beating you over the head with it. And they're not very engaging or not even creating social spaces for people to kind of have dialogue. And, and I wonder with your project, which is so elegantly conceived and, and has a great amount of science behind it, I wonder, do you think it's possible to get people to think about your spaces critically you know, when their heads are down, they're kind of buried in their iPhone, their iPad, and, only, and then they look around and they think, wow, this is some cool shit, but I'm not seeing a whole lot of 
a point to it other than this is great. So how do you do that and and provide the you know information so people can latch on to something? And it sounds like you yeah talked a yeah yeah bit no about that's that. a super good question and we've been discussing this so intensively. Yeah, basically we're doing this because there's already that community. So we're doing this not with the idea that we could produce an interest of water in people that have never been interested in that. What is very exciting about this is that we want to empower and expand a community that is already there. And by doing that, we have the feeling that it could be influential to others that might not be interested initially on this. Of course, there will be an audience that will come to the PS1 and will start to think about these things, but definitely, as you said, might have a more superficial relationship with Cosmo. But still, they will get an experience out of it, and they will have a feeling that architecture could be about the management of these resources. And for us, that's already kind of enough in many cases when we see what's the way people perceive architecture that is mostly what's the way it looks and the, let's say, singularity of it. For us, we're using singularity to bring people into the experience in which they could think architecture as something that could perform processes in which we all could get a benefit, a very direct one. But there's other things that will happen because water purification is a huge concern already for a big part of the world's population we have the feeling that those people could get much more intensively identified with the process that will be narrated in, in Cosmo. And therefore, those people will be the ones that initially will be totally engaged with this. But of course, we'll try our best. And one of the things, for instance, that we're, we're planning to do is to have a series of discussions. In New York, New York City, there's already a big number of people that are dealing with this. There's people who are doing activism, there's scientists that are doing research, there's journalists that have been written a lot on this, there's people that work in diplomacy and that are dealing with international treaties to, to deal with water. What, one of the things that we want to do is to use the time in which the PS1 is getting other publics, not necessarily those who go to party, for instance, the daytime, and bring these different people and have conversations in Cosmo. Cosmo is producing very comfortable climatic conditions around it because, of course, there's a process in which shade gets mixed with wind or airflow and with uh, evaporation of water, and therefore the temperature will be very much reduced. And around that kind of comfortable environment, we are planning to have a series of meetings in which people will be invited to come and talk to others. I know that probably it won't be perfect, but if you had certain kind of potentials, like the fact that architecture could be seen by the architect's community mainly as something different that could perform good things for everyone and for the environment and could even create a certain degree of awareness around certain topics, mixed with the fact that we will do that in a soft way and with the possibility of having meetings there, we are excited to see what comes out of this. You know, Andres, one of the things that I like about a lot of the work that I've been looking at and watching your videos and the message that keeps coming across to me, and, I, and you can please tell me if I'm completely off my rocker, but you have a way of taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary and bringing the what is seemingly seen as kind of not for the ordinary people and the architecture and kind of finding a way to kind of connect people who are seemingly disconnected from 
what is kind of probably thought of as more high minded. And it seems very connected and rooted in looking at people at working class, poor and finding that there is value in their lives and in their in their daily routines that can be created. Uh, you can create extraordinary things from that. Is that my reading that incorrectly? Yeah, yeah. No, for me, that's the, the center of, of the work we do. For instance, we, we did a few years ago this project, IKEA Disobedience. And many people said, oh, that's, that's how an architectural practice gets to do something that is basically an archive of the way people live their ordinary life. That's not architecture. And we were saying, well, this is totally architecture because in the same way, way that many times we do plans to protect buildings that have a historical value or we, we protect environmental like environments because they are valuable in terms of nature, we have to pay attention to the way people live and see that there's already value there. And for instance, in New York, we found amazing cases. We found, for instance, people that were doing research at home. And that was something that they were sharing with others. And it was producing, let's say, an improvement in the whole knowledge of a neighborhood. Or for instance, we found a woman that was raising her children in the kitchen of the restaurant that she ran. And it was a very interesting situation because the workers of the restaurant were becoming kind of a big family with the children. And the children had a great experience being there, doing them their homework. And it was a very, very exciting situation. So basically what we think is that people are doing things that are very valuable, ordinary people like like us or like like me, like other people, like my friends, like the people I see in the subway, I think those people are extreme, are not necessarily something that needs to be improved. But most of the times, architects look carefully to the way people develop their lives and try to see how that could be empowered rather than just removing what they do and trying to replace that for other, other ways of doing. And this potential for architecture to empower rather than replacing for me, it's very important. It's like the center of my interest and my activity. One of the things I got from your work is that you talked about transparency in one of your videos. You talked about information. And it seems like by providing information and kind of creating a transparency, you give people an opportunity to own their lives and kind of removing some of the kind of constraints on people by kind of opening up the possibilities and where people don't see those things. And it just seems... That's one of the things I took away from looking at hearing you talk and looking at your work. It seemed that by providing people with information and that level of transparency, it seemed to give people that better chance of owning their own lives. Yeah, totally. When we see, for instance, the way we relate to many devices and technologies, most of the times and in an increasing way, those technologies are very much limiting our capacity to take decisions and when doing that, we're many times gaining efficiency, but we're losing the opportunity to bring diversity into daily life. And I think that's something that we can learn from ecosystemical analysis and from political ecology, that we see that the ecosystems that are more durable and more adaptable are those who have the capacity to retain diversity and variation. And I think we can also imagine that in an urban scene, an urban scene that contains 
people that have been able to develop their singularities end up being a place that is much more complex and that has the potential to respond to many coming challenges. And for me, that's something that it's very important for architecture. So how do we do architectural practices that, as a result, contribute to maximize the potential for societies to retain and to empower their their difference, their pluralism? And that's what we're trying to do. And that has to do also with water. When we see the way these diversities produce, many times... It's not something immaterial. It's not singularity, human singularity. It's many times related to the way we do things. So, for instance, we think of kitchens, and kitchens could promote a uniform way of cooking or relating to food, And but we could also design kitchens that promote diversity and make people explore different ways of doing things or maybe even make it possible to make compatible different ways of relating to food. And I think architecture could very, very well engage with the promotion of and the protection of this kind of diversity. And I do believe that an environment produced like that is much more exciting, but also more fair. And yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. I think the thread that I see running through your work and the same reason why some people would call it not architecture would have a hard time fitting it into the traditional idea of what an architect does is because a lot of your performance-based work or your work with different kind of imagined scenarios has to do with putting out a certain social scenario that would necessitate a certain typology, like you're saying with the kitchens or living situations or so. And that as soon as we start to take these different social structures for granted, that's when we take the structures that they inhabit for granted or the structures that they support for granted. And I wanted to try to figure out how, whether you have uh, other people doing kind of similar seeming work, work in similar veins that you look to, um, that you find inspiring or that are a good foil to your kind of work. And also if you found any inspiration from last year's PS1 Young Architects winners, uh, Hi-Fi, and their work also working it with ecological themes, but in a less infrastructurally vain project and more biological vein? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think the way we work is responding to, a, let's say, an appetite that there's. Uh, it's very much shared in our societies. And we relate it to many people, like famous people and non-famous people and writers and movie makers and musicians and journalists and philosophers so, and people that, that work in house and other places and I don't know, like I have the feeling that we're moving to new sensitivities and I think that the work we do it's got a huge context and we are happy to, to share ideas with many other people and to pay attention to many, many people. I come from a place from Madrid that is very much producing this dialogue and I'm now working in New York where I think that we could find many neighborhoods in which this way of thinking is perform every day and many places where this is happening almost naturally. So I feel that I'm part of a context and that probably I could easily find many people that could share the points of view that we're we're using to our practice. Of course, the the PS1, it's been a a huge thing in architecture. And I think for architects, it's been something that everyone's been paying attention to. And not only last year's, but Last year's proposal that was very interesting and very close to many of the things that we're trying to do. But but many of the previous ones, even the, the first one that was done in 1992, 
was the one in which there was uh, an attempt to do a, a beach, an urban beach in the PS1. And for me, the whole tradition of using water and doing it in a hedonistic way is related to Cosmo. But also it's true that in, within this time, everything has changed. And that since 1992, the way we relate to water is being totally transformed. So what, what was very much politically charged in 1992, like reclaiming a place for hedonism, it couldn't be the same now. I think hedonism is not the same that was in the 90s. And places like Berlin, where hedonism was related to new ways of showing your body, to participating in the social, to understanding human relationships and affection, are not the same now. So the same way of dealing with the PS1 would never be equally active. And I think that we, our societies, have changed. And the, the, the fact that we know now that water is so scarce that there's a need to consider that we're facing different scenarios in terms of environmental crisis, uh, that that is bringing a huge level of unfairness in the way the world is being managed. All these things are, are, have produced a new context. But what we're trying to do is to say, okay, if that's the world that we're inhabiting, we need to find a way to reclaim a space for discussion, for for immersion in these realities that could also be somehow an environment that we want to inhabit. And therefore, probably, responsibility needs to come with certain level of comfort and also of uh, even celebration. And we wanted to do an immersion in these situations in which we could uh, simultaneously be concerned about many of the things that are happening and trying to find a way to relate into this problematic aspect of it, but also to be celebrating the fact that we as society could evolve and could make a different way of, of relating to water something that could become natural. So this kind of preoccupation has been very much within the development of the project. Andres, just a quick question on a lighter note. Um, one of the things we've been asking is uh, what, do you, what kind of music you've been listening to and uh, what books are you reading right now? Well, right now, many things. For instance, I will tell you things that I'm reading. Well, many technical things. So I'm very interested in sociology, and I'm reading now Inventing Methods. That's what I have, like, on my table. That is a <laughs> compilation of super good papers on how people use technology in daily life. So it's very much related to, to this. And it's by Celia Lurie and Nina Walkerford. I'm also reading other things that I have here, like, but they're all very much related to my work. So, for instance, I, I, I'm now reading Cosmopolitics by Isabel Stengers, and I'm reading also Material Participation by Norge Marvel. So, I mean, it's, it's a little bit boring now, I've noticed, but for me, it's very exciting. <laughs> what kind of music are you listening to right now? Right now, I was, I was listening to Vampire Weekend, so, yeah. <laughs> I think that's come up before in another podcast. That's not that that uh, uh, let's say academic <laughs> keeps the energy up. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Andres, for joining us to talk about the PS One project. It's going to be a lot of fun following that and watching it emerge in uh, in New York. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope we can dance this summer together uh, <laughs> with Cosmo. Yeah. Well, we plan to be there. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Andres. Thanks, Andres. Thank you so much.
It was such a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure. Likewise. Pleasure's all ours. Thanks. All right, we're back. I really enjoyed that conversation. I wanted to apologize for the quality of the recording. We had to record via cell phone, which uh, doesn't sound as good as, as when we're able to record the local tracks, but I think it was pretty clear. What do you guys think? It was a good talk, huh? You know, before we you set this interview up, I had never heard of Andres Yaka. And having spent enough time looking at his uh, videos and some of the lectures, I really do enjoy the spirit in which his work is delivered. He's politically active in a way that does not alienate people, uh, really about looking at people where they are and understanding and gathering information, not just by through personal narrative, by really kind of digging into the information that he can gather and creating these very social spaces that really is uh, quite powerful. And his videos, I mean, I've, to me, he's a more fun version of Rem Kohlhaas. I mean, he's, <laughs> you know, Rem is kind of very colorful and he's got a lot of visual information there, but it seems very Dutch and it's very alienating. And there's something very deeply connected. This work deeply connects with people on various social scales and in ways that, you know, it, can, it appeals to young people. A lot of his work is even, he, he did a project dealing with uh, older people and, and their social environment. So I think, you know, when you look at his videos, they're super fun, very engaging. And his work and his personality is is one that is uh, quite refreshing in, in this day and age where we kind of we're getting beaten up with these star attacks and their egos. He seems to be someone without that. And uh, it would be great to go out there and visit him when this project is up and running and kind of um, see how it works. Yeah, I believe the the Pavilion Cosmos will be installed, part of Momo's PS1, at, from June 23rd to through to um, September 7th. So very much in the heat and humidity of a New York summer, you can go out and have some filtered, naturally filtered water cascade up down upon you and bask, literally bask in Andres's vision. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sounds fun. Well, it sounds like we've, uh, we've reached the end of this show. Um, how are you guys feeling? Got anything to endorse this week? I would like to point to a couple things. Ken sort of mentioned briefly at the top of the show, this article that just came out today about Ken, Ken Shuttleworth, uh, making Shuttlecock? shuttle, I almost said shuttlecock. <laughs> Because he talks, yeah. Ken, Ken the Pen, for short. Yeah. Ken the Pen, formerly of Norman Foster's office, who now runs uh, Make Architecture, and was speaking to a group of engineers and made some comments that are just so hysterically out of whack that I feel like he must have been drunk. And I, I don't want to get us a libel suit, but it's like, Ken, you must have been drunk, right? He's, he, um, I'm going to go ahead and quote from him because it's so funny. Celebrity architect, he, he's telling engineers that they need to tell architects to just um, check their egos because engineers are the ones that do all the work for real. And he says this, celebrity architects, or as they are known in the business, Starkitects, have taken over with their dazzling shirts, their big watches, and their big, pointy, shiny erections. And I just cannot believe that the group of engineers listening to this wasn't, it, you know, in a part of their minds going, yeah, preach it. But on the other hand, going... Yeah, the, dude, you're a little drunk. You need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a hilarious article. It's on the Architects Journal UK. And I think you you might have to register to get to read the article. But it's a pretty hilarious um, commentary by an architect who was clearly feeling somewhat relaxed or maybe feeling very intimidated by a bunch of big watches. I, I don't know. <laughs> 
he should have thanked his engineers or like made it a personal appeal to any of the engineers he's worked with on prior projects and just be like, yeah, that guy, I don't deserve any yeah. of the attention. It's that guy or that girl that really deserves whatever uh, praise you're giving him for his big watch or whatever. I mean, to, to put a positive spin on it, I think that the takeaway that right now we're in a time of building buildings that are very much based in engineering, you know, with sustainable technologies, with the way that buildings are being built right now are smart and really do require an integration of engineering, not just structural, but also even getting to biological engineering and, and you know, and water filtration, as Andres said, with, is doing with his project, you know, and I think that's great. And I think that once again, this sort of image of the architect as this big ego driven personality is taking over the news media when in fact the discussion of how architects and engineers collaborate and work together great and really can produce wonderful buildings is sort of, it, it's a discussion that's happening quietly, but it is definitely there. And it's, it is the reality that architects and engineers do collaborate, do work together, do give one another credit when they both do a good job. So, I mean, I'm a little Pollyanna about it, but I, I do think that's the case. Well, I was going to be a little bit uh, humorous and, and point out if you go to his website, uh, the firm's website, Right on the front page of their website is all of the engineers they've actually worked with on their projects. There are absolutely no photos anywhere on their website of the actual work that they've actually completed. It's all engineers. It's just about engineers. Hmm. Really? Hmm. I'm so lying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like going to look it up. It's so convincing, Ken. <laughs> that was very convincing. I'm just, I, I don't know if it's that critical actually, because if he's uh, talking about architects and their big shiny erections, what does that say about engineers? <laughs> mm. Oh, dear. Well, it's a lot harder to make a portmanteau word with engineers and some type of celebrity word. Starchitecture. architect, Easy. Engineers. Uh, well, Empire Nears. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of architects who would, you know, look, it's, it's, I think we could have a sense of humor about it and laugh Absolutely. at ourselves and go, yeah, yeah. Uh, we all know the importance of our consultants and, uh, you know, we wouldn't be anywhere without them. Do they need to share the front page of our websites? I probably think not. The best thing they can do is actually hide the work that they create. So <laughs> figure out a way to make our work look better. But, you know, I think we can go back to the days when our architects did everything. We ceded a lot of this responsibility to other professionals for various reasons. And certainly it would be a, a nice kick in the ass. And maybe that's what it was, you know, half tongue in cheek, half kick in the ass. We could, you know, we can go back to school and we can get our engineering degrees and, uh, we can still create beautiful things and we just don't need those consultants to do that for us anymore. Or we can continue to, you know, pretend that engineers have a, have taste and um, build things that people actually like. And, you know, and I'm, you all know that I'm not one for Calatrava and, you know, I'd hate to see a world filled with that kind of work all the time. So if that's what the quality of engineering can bring to architecture, I don't think we have a problem with that. Ken, regarding what you said about having architects really recently having sourced a lot of their or outsourced a lot of their, I think you've referred to seeded a lot of their prior work or prior responsibilities to other disciplines and other professions. That was a topic that was directly brought up in our most recent Dean's List with Monica Ponce de Leon of uh, University of Michigan, Taubman. And uh, she has a great, like, I just really enjoyed doing that interview with her. She has some really fantastic justifications and like attitudes towards that kind of seating of responsibility by the architect and what 
may happen in the future, not necessarily to regain all of those responsibilities or those abilities, but in a way to kind of reown some of them and some of the profession, how the profession can become newly diversified without necessarily trying to co-opt back all of these things that had gone to different building sciences. So I do want to point to that interview because I was really happy with the way it turned out. But I also wanted to endorse and turn people's attention to a recent news item that we posted about the Berkeley Art Museum, the gigantic concrete brutalist structure that was recently closed last December and in preparation for everything being moved to a downtown Berkeley location to a new renovated building by uh, Dolores Cofidio. And I just love that old concrete building. As, as a student, as an undergrad at Berkeley, I spent a lot of time, a lot of time there, both like as a student doing various projects and also just as a patron and just like loving, I love that space so much. And there's just so much that happened in that space that just like could happen only there because of these giant concrete vacuums. <laughs> so I will miss the fact that the, that the uh, Berkeley Art Museum is housed in there. And I do know that that site or the uh, the building itself is on the National Registry. So even though it's like apparently a giant, has a huge seismic handicap and, you know, if something seriously happens, it's going to not be so great, but it's just an amazing building. And I'm sorry to see it be uh, evacuated in that way, but we'll see what happens and um, keep an eye on it. It is a gorgeous, amazing building. It's it's so just unapologetically brutal. I love it. <laughs> and I will put in the show notes, a link to my former classmate, Tom Falder's project that he did at the uh, Berkeley Art Museum called the Bamscape. Yes. It was sort of a installation piece built in with these bright orange lounging furniture. Very, very cool. And with um, outlets. Or a single outlet, at least. Yes, with outlets, so you could charge all your devices. So we'll put some links to that in the show notes. But just because the concrete in there is so amazing, and I have said on Arconnect many times, concrete is, it's not, I couldn't say it's my favorite material, but I love concrete. And it reminds me then of the post that, Paul, you just put up today about the artist Tom Sachs' love letter to plywood, which in a similar vein is just sort of extolling the virtues of plywood. And I had to post in that thread a link to the Peter Sheldahl essay about Scott Burton and concrete that was a transformative essay for me about how to approach materials in the world. So, you know, I am someone who would go to the Berkeley Art Museum and just hug the concrete because it's <laughs> such an amazing place. And so it's sad. We don't know what's going to happen to it. We actually have uh, the Bamscape featured on Arconnect that we can link to. Oh, great. It's a beautiful project. Yeah. Ken, did you want to say something? I don't really have an endorsement other than um, I have a bookshelf in my office that I have all the books that have to be evacuated out of my house if there's a fire. Ah. <laughs> One special shelf. The shelf you would run to. Yes, yes. It's, uh, yeah, there's the the dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the computers. <laughs> and then my books are out the door first. So I, you know, we've been, I've been asking this question of uh, Andres and, and other uh, guests that we've talked to about what are they reading and what are they listening to? And I just wanted to, you know, not say what I'm reading, but what you should read or perhaps should peruse. I have three quick books on my shelf that I really love and I don't think people see enough of. There's a book about on Walter Pischler, fantastic, I think, Viennese architect, who a lot of, um, you know, Tom Maine and others have really have uh, a lot of uh, connection to. The Appliance House by Ben Nicholson. Oh, um, it's a beautiful love. book. That is such a beautiful book. Oh, man. Yeah, I worked really hard to get that book. And um, The Lancaster Hanover Mask by John Haydock, the three pretty important books on my shelf. But 
I can send the photo if you like. And there's other good books on there as well. Yeah, please do What's that. What's it called? The shelfie. Do a shelfie. <laughs> right? Of your books on your shelf. It's a shelfie. Do a yes. shelfie. We'll put it in the, in the show notes. Is that a real term or did you just make that up? No, that's a real term. Oh, okay. All my author friends is it? throw it around. Oh, yeah. I like it. Yeah. It's a shelfie of my, my bookshelf. Yeah. And then, then next week I can, I'll take photos of my record collection, my small there record collection I've started. <laughs> just the spine. In vinyl. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and my $100 Nick Cave album. <laughs> oh, worth it, though. Worth it. Wow. I think it's Murder Ballads. I think I bought uh, Murder Ballads accidentally for $100. <laughs> I'm sure Nick Cave appreciates it. I downloaded the Nick Cave wrote the soundtrack to the Brad Pitt movie about Jesse James, which I, of course, watched that incredibly slow and very beautiful movie because of the incredibly beautiful Brad Pitt. But it turns out the music in it by Nick Cave was phenomenal. And so I downloaded that soundtrack by him because it is so it's great studio music mm. so yeah sorry we started talking about music and i said i wasn't going to talk about it and yet there i went <laughs> well i think that's a show it was fun talking to you guys again as always if those of you out there listening have any comments or suggestions especially specific legal issues for brian to address you know we're pretty we're pretty general in our legal discussions because you know our audience is pretty wide-reaching but if you have any specific questions about the law and how it relates to architecture, let us know. You can reach us on Twitter with hashtag Archonnect Sessions. Send us an email to connect at Archonnect.com. You can give us a call and leave a message at 213-784-7421. We'd love for you to rate the podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. There's uh, an option to review them both. We would really love that. And um, Come on, Frank. <laughs> All right. That's it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, you guys. Nice talking to you all. Thanks. Talk to you next week. Until next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.